0: podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. If you're just joining with us, um, we've been looking at this uh, passage here in uh, Colossians 1 and I've been going through the book of Colossians And today, you know, we we celebrate uh, Christ's resurrection. It's something that we celebrate, uh, something that has happened over 2,000 years ago. Um, And we're celebrating the fact that Christ did resurrect from the dead. And uh, I really hope that you're expecting to hear something um, about Christ's resurrection. And I really want to remain faithful to that. Uh, But it's very interesting, especially here out of Colossians 1, just kind of how all of this ties together. And uh, even just going through our passage here, how uh, Paul is going to talk about Christ who has resurrected from the dead. And uh, if you can remember, these believers here that were living in Colossae, um, they were under a lot of things that um, were, were pressures. There were cultural pressures. Uh, from the world on the outside. Um, And then there were pressures from the inside in the church uh, trying to help get them to conform to something else besides keeping their focus on Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul kind of really goes through this whole uh, passage here um, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 uh, through verse uh, 20 uh, that we are going to be looking at here this morning, about how important it is that we keep our focus, we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we do that. It's important that we um, keep our focus on Christ, that we don't allow our minds or our hearts or our eyes to shift from what uh, Jesus says and what he has already given to us uh, in his word. And uh, so Paul really makes that connection here as he's going through talking about how important it is that we keep Jesus central to that. And uh, if you can remember some of the things that we looked at here, um, he talked about how Jesus was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He talked about, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so we saw that Jesus is the, is, is the creator, that he is uh, the one that created all things. By him, all things consist. By him, all things hold together. And we need to exalt Jesus and give him that rightful place in our lives and not allow our hearts to be drawn away from other things uh, that might try to attract us Uh, that are in this world. And so Paul really hones in on that, and he talks about that. And this morning, what we're going to look at here is he's going to talk about this in verse number 18. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and mark this phrase here, it says, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is firstborn from the dead. And so when we look at that, what does that mean? What does that mean for Jesus to be firstborn from the dead? And so this is really what I want you to take away with you uh, this morning. Exalt Jesus because he is the firstborn from the dead. So let's take note here of a couple things. First of all, number one, let's look at our text here again. It says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, that Jesus would have the preeminence, that Jesus himself would be the one and only. Can I ask you that question? Is Jesus the one and only in your life? No others, no other rivals, as we're we saying here this morning. Does Jesus have the preeminence in your life? Paul says here that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. There's no others. So what does that mean for Jesus to be firstborn from the dead? We see here in our text here that Jesus is to be exalted, and we need to give him that exalted place. And Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn, and so we need to know what that means that he is the firstborn from the dead. So notice what it says here. We've seen that phrase, that firstborn before in that context, as it talked about that he was the firstborn of creation. Remember, it wasn't the fact that Jesus was created, because Jesus wasn't created, right? Jesus is God. That's where a lot of these... uh, Cults get off on things. They say that Jesus was a creation. They say that he was an angel. They say that he's nothing more than a God. But Jesus is God. And it's the fact that he has the place of prominence that he is the firstborn. But here about the firstborn of the dead, it's not the fact that Jesus was the first one to resurrect from the dead, right? Because we see that there were other people that were resurrected. In God's Word, we see the stories about these people that were resurrected even before Jesus was resurrected. Here's just a few examples. In 1 Kings in the Old Testament, 17 eight, uh, through 22, this is about 900 years before Jesus Christ. Elijah the prophet, uh, we see the story where he stretched himself out on the, uh, on the young boy and revived him to life because that boy uh, was dead. In 2 Kings 4.36, about 100 years later, the successor of Elijah, Elijah, revived the son of a Shumanite woman. In 2 Kings 13.20-21, after Elijah was buried, when the corpse of another man happened to touch Elijah's body, the man came to life. In the New Testament, we see that uh, Jesus himself resurrected people from the dead. We know of at least three uh, corpses that he brought back to life. There was the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus in Mark chapter 5, verses 22 through, and uh, 41. We see the son of a, wood, a widow, uh, Naon, in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. And even Jesus' friend, Lazarus, remember uh, the friend of Jesus there, he hears that he is sick and that uh, he even tells his disciples, we must go to Lazarus, uh, he has fallen asleep. And they go there and they find out that uh, he has, in fact, died. And he had been buried now for four days. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the tomb. He cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus resurrects. And, you know, so we see that, uh, that there were other resurrections. And even at Jesus' death on the cross, It says this in Matthew 27, verses 52 through 53. It records for us that there was an earthquake that opened up the tombs of the people that were there. And the saints came out of those tombs and they walked around in the holy city and people saw them. Now that's pretty amazing to think about that. So what does this firstborn from the dead mean then? Well, it means that Jesus resurrected never to die again. You see, when you think about um, all of these other uh, people that um, were there and uh, that they were resurrected, they actually had to die again. Boy, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Can you imagine? Here's Lazarus. I mean, he's already uh, with, uh, in Abraham's bosom. He's already uh, enjoying the comforts uh, of all of that. And then all of a sudden, he gets called back to this life with all of its troubles and hardships and death and disease. And he gets called back to that. That's why living this life is not about this life. What does this world have to offer us? nothing. It's hard. It's full of hardships and difficulties. That's why we shouldn't long for this world and desire to continue to live in this world. Because we seek a heavenly country. We seek a better country. It's far more superior to this one that we live in. And these men, they had to die again. But see, Jesus resurrecting, because he is the firstborn from the dead, he will never, he was resurrected never to die again. That's powerful. Because it tells us something of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. You see, Christ is the first resurrection of the new creation. He will never die again. The only corpse ever to come out of a tomb alive, never to die again, was the body of Jesus. Never. It should be noted and reminded that Jesus did actually die. There are still people who believe that Jesus didn't actually die. A rather popular book that came out in 2003 that was made later into a movie was called The Da Vinci Code. And uh, in that book, in that movie, it was set forth that Jesus uh, didn't really actually die, and there was just this big cover-up by the church to control people through all of this. But you have to look at the historical account of what it says about Jesus. Jesus said of himself in Revelation uh, 1.18, I was dead, but behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and the grave. Uh, The truth is that Jesus did die an actual physical death. He was put to death by professional executioners, those Roman guards that stood at his execution. Uh, Crucifixion killed people. There's no doubt about it. And they were there. They were uh, under the authority of the Roman Empire to put those people to death. It wasn't one of these things like, hey, man, give me 50 bucks and we'll let you live, okay? We'll act like you died, but we really didn't kill you, okay? We'll act like we stabbed you with a spear, but we really didn't. No, he actually did die. And he died a horrible, cruel death. And his death was certified by those presiding over his execution. It says that with Jesus, when he was on the cross, they came to break the legs of the people that were crucified because they didn't want them lingering on in that state there on the cross. Because crucifixion was really death by asphyxiation. Uh, It was you you were in in a hanged position so much that your breathing became hard and laborious and uh, where you, you struggled to breathe, and eventually uh, you would expire. And the only way that the, uh, the, the person on the cross could get a breath was that they would push up on the nail that was there in their feet. They would push up so that they could get a breath, and then they would sag back down. And this would go on for hours sometimes, even days And so what they would do is they would come and break the legs of the individual so they could no longer push up, and then they would eventually die. But it says of Jesus, when they came to examine him, uh, they saw that he was already dead because they were going to go and break his legs. Uh, And that also fulfilled a uh, prophecy that not a bone in his body uh, should be broken. And so Jesus did actually die Romans 6, 9 says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. One day, each person in here, all of us will have a resurrection. Even those who do not know Christ, which God's word describes as the ungodly, those that have died in their sins. Listen to what Revelation 20, verses 12 through 13 says. It says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. But here it talks about Christ being the firstborn from the dead. He is never going to die again. You see, Christ is the first to be resurrected from the dead and to never die again. One day, all believers, those of us that know Jesus as our Savior... For those that have repented of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, the Bible talks about this. It says that all of those believers that know Jesus will have a new body when Christ returns. Listen to what, uh, as what uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us. And figuratively, creation itself will have a resurrection There will be a new heaven and a new earth, is what uh, Revelation 21 goes into great detail about this. And Christ is the beginning of this. He's the beginning. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. Let's dig into this a little bit more. Turn over with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, because I want to show you something very interesting here about this. 1 Corinthians 15 is really known as the, the great resurrection chapter. Um, Paul here really gives a a defining and definitive uh, um, exposition of who Christ is and what he has done uh, through his resurrection. And uh, he does this because there were actual people in the church living during this time that were saying that Christ had not resurrected from the dead. Now, think about this here just for a moment. Here is this church early church, first century, and we're talking probably uh, 1 Corinthians uh, here was probably written 50-something A.D. We're talking only about 20 years after Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. And there were people already saying Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead in this church, right? And Paul even goes into great detail. He says, uh, about Jesus' resurrection, he says that there were at least 500 people that saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, at one time. And he says a lot of these people are still alive today. Even Paul himself uh, was an eyewitness of that. So, in this passage, uh, look at with me in verses uh, 20 through 23 in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is going to talk about Christ's resurrection. He's going to say a very interesting word here about Christ's resurrection. Verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, mark that word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So he, Christ here is called the first fruits. The title first fruits really here is really a farming metaphor. How many of you in here have a garden or you you farm or do something like that? Okay, a few of you. When you plant something and the harvest has come ready, okay, what you gather is known as the first fruit of that. And really it's going to tell you what kind of crop you're going to get. How many of you remember watching Green Acres? right? There's uh, old, uh, you know, Oliver Wendell Douglas over there, and he hires somebody to, you know, uh, pull out all the weeds, and the guy's pulling out corn, and he goes, what are you doing? He goes, well, I thought you wanted to pull out the weeds. Well, these all look like weeds to me, you know, he's pulling up, ripping up his corn. Um, But here, we're we're talking about here, Christ has resurrected, and he's the first fruits of that, and it's going to tell us of what we can expect in our resurrection. What it's going to be like. Because Christ is the first fruits of that. There will one day be a great harvest in the resurrection of the saints and the new heaven and new earth and Christ is the first fruits of that. So what can we expect? Well, because Christ is resurrected, He's never going to die again. And those of us who know Jesus can expect to have a resurrected body just like his, never to die again. Let's look at a second thing here about Christ being the uh, firstborn of the dead. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection means he is the supreme one of all the resurrected. You see, we need to exalt Jesus not only... Because he has been resurrected never to die again. But he also, his resurrection has made him supreme of all the resurrected. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Now think about that just for a moment everything that you and I struggle through in this life, the hardships, the difficulties that we go through, things that we pray about, uh, people that we pray for, uh, things that we are are wanting God to work in and and desire for God to do and desire for Him to, to work in a certain way. If Christ has not resurrected... everything that we're doing, praying, saying these prayers, doing this, working with people, trying to help them, all of that is in vain. It's worthless. It's useless. But see, Christ has resurrected so that he would be supreme over all of that. And so if Christ had not been raised, then the Christian faith is a hoax and our faith is in vain. The resurrection of Christ is really the crux of the Christian faith, and therefore this resurrection makes Christ the priority. Everything that we do should be centered around and focused on Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, if this church, if this body of believers, ever places the emphasis on anything else other than Jesus, this will cease to be a church. So it's very important that we always place the emphasis on Jesus, that we exalt Him as the resurrected one who is supreme over all, because that's what it's all about. So what can we learn from Christ as the firstborn from among the dead, or the firstfruits of the dead? Colossians uh, 1.18 talks about Christ being the firstfruits. 1 Corinthians 15.20 talks about Christ being the firstfruits. So here's a couple things. Number one, since the first fruits would tell the farmer how great the future harvest would be, we can be sure that the future resurrection shall be glorious because Christ's resurrection was glorious. I mean, I don't know what that was like. I mean, can you imagine being the, uh, one of the, the followers of Jesus to show up at that tomb that day? What about the Roman soldiers that were there, that were keeping guard over the tomb, right? They put the seal on there to make sure, made it sure as they could, make sure nobody was going to tamper with the tomb. And can you imagine that stone rolling away and the glory of Jesus Christ bursting forth out of that tomb? Boy, that was glorious. And in such a way, our resurrection will be glorious as well. Paul compares our future resurrected bodies to a planted seed that brings forth wheat in 1 Corinthians 15.35. The seed really has no glory in comparison to the wheat. And in the same way, our bodies are like a seed. They're sown as what? Perishable, but they will be raised imperishable. They're sown in corruption, but they will be raised incorruptible. That's an amazing thing. Oftentimes when I have presided over doing funerals, when we gather there, the family gathers there at the, uh, the graveside, and um, we know that we're all going to depart, and we're going to leave, we're going to go our separate ways. And uh, we know that that body is going to be put into the ground, and it is going to be buried. But if that person, if that individual knows Christ, That body is going to be resurrected in glory. And that's something that we can really look forward to. Here's the second thing. Our bodies will be like Christ's resurrected body. His body could be touched in John chapter 20, verse 27. He could eat Luke chapter 24, verses 42 through 43. And it also seems as though he could walk through doors as he suddenly appeared to his disciples in a closed space after his resurrection, John chapter 20, verse 26. Boy, I really wish sometimes I had the power to walk through doors right now. (laughs) Don't you? Right? (laughs) Mike, where are you? (laughs) Here I am. Mike, where are you? (laughs) Here I am. Right? Be able to do that. Jesus could do that. He ascended to heaven in his new body, is what Acts chapter 1 9 teaches us. But one of the greatest glories of our new bodies is that they will be without sin and therefore able to inhabit heaven and to be with God. And this is something to be excited about, look forward to, because Christ was the first fruits, the firstborn of this great harvest that we are awaiting. Do you ever give the thought to your resurrected body? What it would be like. What are some of the things that maybe you're looking forward to? You see, even with all those other resurrections that are shown in scriptures, we saw all those people died again. Jesus alone has been raised with an indestructible, resurrected body. And that is a type of the bodies that we will receive at a second coming. You see, our new bodies will not be subject to disease, to aging, or death, as what 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 teaches us in Revelation 21, 4. Just to think of that, right? No more wrinkles. No more getting up and going, Okay, Okay, I'm ready to go now, right? No more wrinkles, no more aching, no more disease, no more trips to the doctor, no more knee replacements. We had three knee replacements in one week here. It's unbelievable. Now, don't miss this. I want you to see Jesus clearly here. You see the result of Christ being the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, is so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. What are you longing really for? I mean, is it, it, like, you think about this, right? Like, is our longing just so, you know, we'll leave this world and we will have the glories of heaven, have the glories of a resurrected body, have all these things, or is it, solely focused on Jesus. Is that really what we want? Do we want Jesus? Or is it these other things? I mean, these are all things are great. But see, this is what Paul was trying to do. These believers were were being pressured to take their focus off of Jesus onto other things. And he's trying to bring them back and to show them clearly who Jesus was and is. And that their hearts and their minds should be longing and desiring for Jesus. If I'm honest with you, if I'm honest with myself, many times Jesus is not what I desire. It's other things. Oh sure, I want all the benefits. I want everything that he talks about here but Jesus is not my desire. We have to have our hearts settled on Christ, longing for him, desiring him. You see, because Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead, he should come to have first place in everything. Listen to what Philippians 2 9 through 11 says. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's look at our last thing here about this resurrection. Jesus' resurrection means He is all-sufficient. Notice what our text here says in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1. Verse number 19, it says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His you see, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead because he is all-sufficient. In this pet in this text here, Paul says that Christ is worthy or being exalted because he is all-sufficient. He said that the fullness of God dwells in him. and in verse 20 he adds, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Essentially Paul is saying, is that Christ is sufficient for salvation, and we don't need anything else. Christ is enough because he is fully God. In this church uh, here at Colossae, there was a temptation to trust in Jesus plus other things. The false teachers in this church were known as Gnostics and they were teaching that you had to have this secret knowledge to really know the Lord or to really know what He had to say. And you needed this extra secret knowledge. And they were drawing them away from Christ. There was worship of angels. There were others who thought that Jesus wasn't enough. And sad to say, but there are many in this generation that believe that Jesus is one of many to believe in. There are many church-going people that trust in their baptism, they trust in their faithfulness to the church, they trust in their upbringing, etc., etc., etc. Instead of trusting in Christ and Christ alone, that's it. Similarly, the Colossian heresy here accepted Jesus as one of many sources from God. But he wasn't enough for salvation. And so Paul confronts this heresy specifically by taking notice of this phrase here. He uses in verse 19, he says that Christ is the fullness of God. And it's the fullness of God in Him that dwells. Now what does that mean, in Christ the fullness of God dwells? Colossians chapter 2 verse number 9 actually says it a little bit more explicitly. It says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so fullness means that the totality of who God is, everything that who God is, dwells in Jesus. Everything. You see, Jesus Christ is the exhaustion of God. And moreover, the fullness is said to live in Him. And it's not temporary. It was and is there to stay. You see, the attacks on Christ back then are really the same today. People say that Christ was a good man, he was a prophet, he was an angel. He's anything and everything other than what he actually said that he is. The world says Christ is good, but he's not good enough. He's not sufficient. Listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, or else he would be the devil or hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman... Or something worse, you can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. You see, because of Christ's fullness, that makes him the only option, the only way to reconcile us to God. There is no other way for us to be reconciled to God. In other words, to have peace with God is only through Jesus. And see, it's one thing for Jesus to die on the cross, right? Like, I mean, he did die on the cross. He shed his blood. But his resurrection made that a reality for us to have peace with God. Because if Jesus would have just died and just died and that was it, and he never resurrected, that would do nothing for us. He had to resurrect. He had to become the firstborn of the resurrection. So, because Jesus is all sufficient, because all the fullness of God dwells in him, I want you to notice two things. Number one, Christ is able to reconcile all things to God because he made peace through the blood of his cross. What does that mean, word reconcile mean? It means that by the blood of his cross, Christ made peace with his former enemies. Did you know that you were an enemy with God? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the Bible clearly teaches and says that you are an enemy of God right now. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let me read this verse here, these verses here with you. It says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we without Christ were strangers, we were aliens, we were far off. There was hostility between us and God. But what did God do? He sent his son, Jesus. God himself took on flesh. And he took our wrath that we deserve from God. He took our place and he was crucified so he could make peace with himself. That's amazing. And all of this was certified by his resurrection. And it says that he's reconciling all things... You see, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, triumphing over them is what Colossians 2.15 says. And someday is what Philippians uh, 2.10 teaches. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the second thing. Christ reconciling all things to God includes both things on earth and things in heaven. Now, I love this. See, I think this is sometimes what we forget. You see... Christ's resurrection was not just about reconciling us to Him. It was reconciling all things, whether on the earth or in the heavens. You see, this whole world was disrupted by sin. It was marred. It was thrown into chaos because of sin. All the way back in Genesis 3, when uh, Adam had sinned, the curse came upon this earth. Everything was cursed. And what is Jesus doing? He's making all things new. And when He returns, He will redeem all things, even this earth. Listen to what Romans 8, 18-23 says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, Paul talks about this groaning as in childbirth, right? I remember when my daughter Evelyn was born, I had never seen groaning like that in my entire life. I mean, wow. And and you husbands, I mean, I, I I mean, you just kind of stand there, you're you're helpless. You're like, "I, I don't know what to do here, right? All of creation is groaning and it's in pain, ready to be set free from that pain. And when Jesus returns, because he has resurrected, he will make all things new. He will restore the glory of the earth. He will restore the glory of the heavens. And he will restore our bodies. And we will have a resurrected body just like his. And so Christ's victory on that cross was the decisive turning point of history. And it guarantees that all of Satan and his forces are defeated. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world has, will be driven out. That's what he said in John uh, chapter 12, 31. And so all of that was made a reality when Christ resurrected from the dead. And so he'll restore everything. Are you looking forward to that? Let's keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds focused on Jesus. Let's not get distracted by everything else that's going on. We have a living hope that we can trust in and believe in. Let's pray together.